Welcome to an AONN Plus podcast event created to provide a platform to engage and inform membership on relevant topics which impact your professional practice. The focus is on the AONN Plus eight domains of knowledge. This podcast will highlight the Navigator Pledge that was developed in 2017. As a navigator, I pledge my head to share knowledge for informed decision making, my heart to empower advocacy and loyalty, my hands to deliver compassion and remove barriers, my hope to embrace and preserve quality of life. Navigators have within themselves the inner strength, the power, and the fortitude to do what is needed for patients. They should never doubt their abilities, knowledge, or willpower to make things happen. Thank you for joining us as we honor the navigators, special people that make a difference in the lives of those around them. Welcome. Today's podcast for the heart and soul of oncology navigation is titled, Two Elders Share What It Means to Help Someone Who is Different from Oneself. Linda, you want to tell them our theme? Absolutely. I think as we talk today and we share our experience, our theme is really about cultural humility, that we are dealing with many different patients from different cultures and really trying to put context around that is really critical to supporting them in their process. I'll take a minute to just quickly introduce myself and then Linda, you can introduce yourself and then we can share a little bit more about our background. So my name is Linda Fleischer. I'm an associate research professor at Fox Chase Cancer Center. And my focus of my work is really around health disparities and patient support. Linda, you just give a little bit of your, your background and then we can talk a little more deeply about how we've come to this work. Sure. I'm Linda Burhan Stefanoff, or Linda B. I'm Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma. I am the founder of Native American Cancer Research Corporation and the president of Native American Cancer Initiatives. So maybe I'll start off with kind of putting context of cultural humility, and then we can give you a little bit more about our backgrounds and what brings us to what we're talking about today. We're thinking about cultural humility because Patients really have many of the same barriers across many different cultures, but those solutions look different. And I think one thing I'd like to share is from the Culturally Linguistic Appropriate Services, the class standards that many of you may be familiar with from the federal government. How do we think about culture? Culture defines how healthcare information is received, how rights and protections are exercised, what is even considered to be a health problem, how symptoms and concerns about that problem are expressed, who should provide treatment for the problem, and what type of treatment should be given. So when you think about culture in this context, it really is the underpinning of healthcare. And so really having this humility and trying to better understand multiple cultures and who is in front of us is really important. Linda, let me turn it back to you to talk a little bit more about your background and what's brought you to the work that you do? Sure. The theme that we're trying to uh, approach in this podcast is that you'll have a lot of the same barriers in different settings, such as transportation or literacy, but the solutions that you have are likely to be totally different from one situation to the next. 
I am American Indian. I'm in a mixed marriage with a white man. We've been together for 43 years this October. I'm an indigenous cancer researcher. I work all over the United States, in Canada. I work in New Zealand and Australia. We also work with many underserved people other than American Indians and Alaska Natives. I taught at universities for 18 years before I worked for the National Cancer Institute and created the Native American Cancer Research Program there. So my work experience is quite diverse. I worked in the government, I've worked in academia, I've worked for a cancer center, I've worked for a community-based nonprofit, and for a small minority woman's own business. Linda, tell us more about yourself. Sure. I grew up in a suburb of Philadelphia as a white Caucasian woman and with a family who was thinking was broad, but our experiences were honestly very limited. And I really was not exposed to too many other cultures and people with different backgrounds until my early 20s. When I moved to Philadelphia, I worked in the prison systems in my early career and really since then have just been very focused on these issues of disparities and really working in underserved communities. Like you, I'm also in a mixed marriage. It's more of a religious mixed marriage, but again, that was my first exposure to Judaism, and I've really had that experience of opening my eyes to very different culture and different beliefs, which has just enriched my life tremendously. Like you, I have worked in the community. I've ran the NCIS Cancer Information Service for a region, including three states. So we went from very, very rural Pennsylvania to Philadelphia and other very dense urban areas with, again, a real diversity in people's backgrounds, race, and culture. So it's been quite a wonderful experience to learn so much in this process. If we look at the heart or what is the story we want to share today, do you want to talk a little bit about how you've worked with the urban, how diverse and how challenging an urban setting can be? Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of times we think of urban centers as having so many resources and the density that how easy it might be for someone to get to care. And actually, I think the reality is quite different. Just to share an example, we have a mobile mammography van that we would take actually into the community, again, trying to create this access to air. And one of the things we would often hear is that women would say, can I have my mammogram on your van too? Because I may have insurance, but I have to take three buses to get to the facility that my insurance allows me to go to. And so the reality is, that woman, this is a major barrier. Transportation has become a major barrier. Another example is for our cancer center, the bus stop, which for many people is how they're going to get to care, particularly those with less resources, actually have to walk almost a quarter of a mile up a hill to get to the facility. So we've had to think about, well, how do we help create that access for those people? You to also talk about languages, and I know you're going to talk about that as well. We may have things written in Spanish, but there's so many dialects within our communities that those materials may not be as relevant as we might think. In the urban areas, we do have this diversity. We have many immigrants, many people without insurance, and those are really challenges for cancer patients. 
and often things that you may not see at the surface that may take a little bit of exploration to find. And then lastly, I think the issues around health literacy and language are critical. So Lynn, tell us a little bit about, from your perspective at heart, what it means and the challenges you're facing. Thank you, Linda. We do have urban Zoo who are American Indians. They also experience the many bus stops that you're describing. My heart is really with our survivorship and how we help our survivors, in particular rural reservations and frontier areas where there are so few ways to get around. When we talk about access to care in Indian country, we have community health representatives for local area transportation, or in Alaska, community health aides are in that area. However, there are no services, let's say I'm working with a family that's in the bush, because you never work with just one race or one individual when you're out in the community. There's always others that you're there to help. And if I'm working with a native family and they're in a small village in the bush of Alaska, we can work with Alaska Native Medical Center and other places to get them transportation down to Anchorage or to Fairbanks, which is where they have to go for treatment. For the non-native, they have no blatant resources to help them fly down. And that becomes quite an issue. So when we talk about cultural humility, it's not just for non-whites. White people who live in this area also can experience great disparities. We talk about languages. We have 217 languages that are still spoken in Indian country today. You are not likely to have a translator at the hospital who is able to translate, and you don't want to use the custodian or family members to translate cancer information when you can. You need to have a community cultural liaison to help you when you're working with people of a lot of different cultural groups. One of the problems that we have in our community, we right now finally have two cancer clinics that are in Indian country. Tuba City that just opened up in 2019, and Salish Cancer Center that opened up a few years before that. Prior to that, and actually even still, and especially with COVID, people are having to travel or having to find additional resources because CHRs can't take them long distances like that. So we rely on different voluntary organizations, such as Angel Flight, that will take them maybe from Flagstaff up to Seattle to get to Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center or out to UCLA. So there's contracts that the Indian Health Service and the Indian communities have, and they have to go to certain clinics to be able to benefit from those. And those can be very, very challenging to work with. Linda? Yeah, I think another example from some of our work too has been when we're focused on that patient with cancer, we're not always thinking about all these other issues that they're dealing with. And it may be, for example, just even the poverty. We've had patients who did not show up for treatment because they were dealing with being evicted. And that had to be that priority that day, as opposed to getting into treatment. And so to a lot of what we're both saying, they're very similar kinds of barriers, but what they look like and those solutions are so specific to either the population or the region or the geography. And so I think it's 
having a sense of what are those resources in our communities that we can leverage for our patients. And that's not always easy to find all of these resources. As you've talked about, Linda, what you have to put together just to get someone to care. That takes a lot of digging to find those resources. That's really something we need to think about, like this idea of the hand as we think about AONN's mission. So what do we do? What do we do about these issues we're all dealing with? And I think we may have both have different thoughts about this, but I think sometimes really asking sort of these questions to our patients. Tell me more about what might be challenges for you in terms of getting here for your treatment. Will your family be supportive of you being here? Tell me more about what you know already about your care, your treatment. I know many are using teach back methods and using other ways to assess health literacy within their practices. But I think also sometimes really just asking those open-ended questions so that we're allowing the patient to tell us more and being able then to step off from that in terms of maybe for this patient, it really is transportation. Maybe for the next patient, it may really be around those financial issues or what they're dealing with in their families. Linda, I think you have similar experiences in terms of how to kind of address these issues with our patients. Well, and among one of the things that Linda F. says frequently is that when you're working with people, you ask, what is it that you need rather than presuming that you know what they need? And I really always learn something when Linda talks about how she approaches patients with literacy, with opening up the conversation in a gentle and in a respectful way. And that certainly does tie back into the cultural humility that she was explaining to us earlier. In our community, we have to, and this again is the hand of how to tailor to the individual patient. What we found when first was working with cancer patients, and I was sitting next to um, an elder, and the doctor had been talking at her for about five minutes, and I used to make the mistake of saying, do you understand what the doctor said, which allows the patient to simply nod or shake their head. And it's the wrong question. You need to use interrogative pronouns, who, what, when, where, how. And so instead I said, how will you tell your family what the doctor told you today? And Annie is the woman I was with and she says, oh, I'm not going to die this winter. And that literally is all she heard from everything the doctor said. Other times we have to approach topics differently. There's a big emphasis on genetic studies and collecting family histories. Well, some indigenous families do not allow you to use the name or the relation of someone who has passed. Sometimes you could say, how is your mother doing now? And then you find, oh, my mother, she passed, she walked on. Other times you can't use the phrase of mother and you only know that by being in the community and in the culture. So sometimes you have to say, how is the one who taught you to jingle dance? How is she doing? Then she can start talking about it without having the relationship tied in and her particular tribal custom being disrespectful. Other words, like your test was positive. This is for any racial group. This is not specific to indigenous peoples. The patient thinks you mean they're healthy. Positive is a good thing. When you find out that positive means that cancer, sometimes the healthcare provider 
or the patient navigator, they feel they've been mean. And what you have is the simple question and that simple answer ends up losing the trust and it impacts the rest of communication and your relationship with that patient. And we like to use a lot of native sisters. They are what we call our navigators. They bridge the gap between Western and traditional medicine and Western spirituality and traditional spiritualities. And you need those local people because they know the differences of green corn versus a stomp dance versus a sweat lodge. And they're quite different. Linda, tell us what some of your hopes are. Well, one of my hopes is that we have the resources and support that we need for the diversity of our population. And it's almost we should have as much diversity in all the tools and resources as the populations and groups we're trying to work with. Because to your point, they're not simple answers. We really need to better understand what those needs are. I think being creative, finding other ways. I know in a lot of urban areas, using Uber and taxi vouchers as a simple thing as a way in transportation. Really looking at our materials. Are they really written in a way that patients understand? And I think often navigators are that internal grassroots group that moves those things forward. And so my hope is, too, that as navigators, we find the resources we need to kind of change the cultural perspectives within our own institutions. And I think AONN has a lot of resources on our website around health literacy, adding more and more around cultural issues and cultural competency and humility. And it's also sometimes finding people within our own institution that are from some of the communities we're, we're trying to work with. And that's not always so obvious. You're saying it beautifully in terms of finding those cultural navigators almost in our communities. Sometimes we can also find them within our own institutions by really exploring that. So my hope is that we can have more solutions to these many problems that our patients are facing that go beyond their cancer treatment. What's your hope, Linda? Thank you. I think that the struggle to find resources that Many times we forget to find the person who's probably the best trained, and that's the social worker, to be able to use the skills. So even though some of our clinics are in very remote areas, there are social workers that have relationships, and we should be able to do that. One of our biggest hopes of what we need is that we need more training programs to improve the communication skills of patient navigators. And certainly a take-home message is going to be that you need a community and a cultural liaison to effectively reach and learn to understand unserved and underserved populations like mine and like so many others. And they're not just racial groups. There can be very poor white people living out on farms all by themselves. The other take-home message in my hope is that we need to have more opportunities for patient navigators to share their experience, just like we two elders <laughs> are doing. You have your own insights and you want to share what has and what has not worked well. And do this in your local community, do it as a webinar and do it through AONN, but do share what you're learning. Linda? Linda, thank you. It's always so good to talk about these 
issues we could spend hours and the idea of really just thinking about that individual, trying to understand more about them and the culture that they come from so that we can tailor our support to them. And I agree with you. I think we all have stories to share and I think sharing them, we learn from each other. And it's really been a pleasure having this conversation with you today. Thank you, Linda. Thank you, AONN. Yes, thank you, AONN. Thank you for joining AONN Plus and today's engagement with key knowledge leaders to enhance your navigation practice or program. Please visit aonnonline.org for other navigation tools, education, and best practices to advance the role of patient navigation in cancer care across the care continuum.